So as we begin the study, little electronic problems here. So as we begin the study of God's Word, I want to begin by reading this together so you can get the flow of the passage. In verse 7, Paul asks, uh, he keeps asking this question and he keeps asked, getting the same answer, which is a wonderful thing. He says, what shall we say then is the law sin? And he says, may it never be, meganoitai, is it? Strongest adversative there is in Greek, probably. The, the thousand times no, it's not sin. He says, on the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except for the law. For I would have not known about coveting if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, when he ignored the law, basically, and just tried to keep it. He was pretty impressed with himself up until that point. But when the law started working on him, uh, coveting of every kind became uh, evident in his life. And he says, when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was the result of life, proved to result in death for me, for sin taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. The law killed Paul. Keep that in mind. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now, have you ever heard it said of someone that they live in the spotlight? You ever seen a, a uh, police helicopter when they're searching for somebody who's robbed a house or something? <laughs> it's kind of what he's talking about here. And have, have you ever seen anybody who's lived their life under a microscope, so to speak? Or uh, they say people oftentimes live in glass houses. In other words, everybody's looking at them and checking them out. And uh, Well, the Apostle Paul's personal testimony in these verses concerning the law of God is exactly that. He's got the spotlight. His life is under the, the law put his life under the microscope. He lived in a glass house. And the light shined into it. And although the law of God is not sin, as he says, and although the law of God is holy and righteous and good, verse 12, Paul tells us it exposed him for what he really was, then it ate him up and brought about his death, and then as we're going to be seen, it spit him out by the grace of God as a new man. It's the amazing thing about the law. It killed and it brought life. The law brought about the death of the old Paul, that it might give the new life of Paul to him, back to him through the person of Jesus Christ. You know, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if any man be in Christ, he's what? A new creation. What happens when you're a new creation? Old things pass away. They die. They're gone. He says, new things have come, and it's in the tense where it says, and they continue to come into the present. God continues to mold and shape his people and give them new life. They walk in newness of life, and we've heard that term over and over again. Because the new life begins with the passing away of the old life, and that's the sum purpose of God's law, to kill and at the same time to give life. You might say it's paradoxical. 
You know, like everything else in Scripture, the way up with God is down, right? If you want to be exalted in God's eyes, humble yourself. The way to live is to die to self and live to Christ, right? That's how we receive God's exaltation. The way to greatness is to become a slave. It's to become a servant, which is totally contrary to the thinking of the world. And that's what God brings about by the law as we take it seriously and we look at it. Now, as we look at this passage, I want us to see basically four things. First of all, that the law spotlights sin in verse 7. Secondly, that the law stimulates sin in verse 8. Thirdly, that the law slays the sinner in verses, verses 9 through 11. And then lastly, that the law shines forth the sinfulness of sin in verse 12 by way of comparison. We're going to see all that. So first of all, let's look at the fact the law spotlights sin. Notice Paul asks that question, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, there's a guy who's really living a righteous life, but he had one area of his life that was way out of whack. And James tells us to be guilty of one point of the law is to be guilty of what? All. How many times you got to lie to be a liar? How many times you got to think adulterous thoughts to be an adulterer? Once. You know, and that's the point. But the law taking opportunity really produced coveting of every kind, it says, in Paul's life. And Now, last week, Pastor Craig showed us that in Christ, we died to the requirements of the law because he fulfilled them on our behalf. And so now, by the grace of God, as verse 6 tells us, we serve God in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter, which is basically the summation of the new covenant, isn't it? That's basically summarizes the new covenant, the newness of the Spirit rather than the oldness of the letter, and uh, summarizes Jeremiah 31 for us, Ezekiel 36 for us, talking about the new covenant that God would make with His people, which naturally brings up the question, especially in the mind of a Jew, is the law now sin? It's a good question. And Paul's response is, it has been all along as may it never be. A thousand times, no, no way. Then he proceeds to tell us why the law of God is not sin. And the most obvious reason is that it's the law of God. Get that in your mind. It's coming from God. It originates with God. Therefore, nothing associated with God is sin. God is too holy to look upon sin, much less be the originator of it. It's the law of God. And when somebody, you know, the law can be set aside, it can be ignored, it can be disobeyed, like uh, if we read on in Deuteronomy 28, he says, he says, if you do the, keep my commandments and you do these blessings and all these great things will happen to you as a nation and as a people, and then if we read the rest of the chapter, he says, if you don't, then I'm going to bring all these curses on you. The law can be disobeyed. It can be ignored. It can be set aside. But the evil is in us, not the law, right? The evil, you know, when a murderer murders somebody, it's not the law that's the problem. It's not the law that's the problem. He went to prison and gets a life sentence and, and has to spend the rest of his life incarcerated. That's his fault. 
not the law. The law is not a problem. The man's the problem, his inner man, and fallen nature is the problem. And Paul gets that across very pointedly here. Paul, in essence, addressed that question back in chapter 6, verse 15. If you look at it again, he says, What then, shall we sin because we are not under the law, because Christ fulfilled it on our behalf, but under grace? Just because you're under grace and you've been forgiven, does that mean you can just ignore the law and do whatever you want, live any way you want? May it never be. Again, he uses that strong adversative clause in Greek. You know, Galatians 5.13 really hit this hard. The Galatians were trying to get back into uh, earning your salvation and the, the law and everything. And he said, you are called to freedom, brethren. In Christ, through grace, you're called to freedom from the law because its requirements were fulfilled on your behalf by him. But, he says, don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. In other words, don't set aside the law and just live in any old way you want because you're under grace. So is the law sin now that we've been set free? May it never be. In fact, you might say the law is the very reason, like Paul, we have been set free from sin. You say, why? Because the law shined the light of his holiness and righteousness on our lives and revealed and exposed our sin. Is the law sin? Au contraire, says Paul. The law put my life under the spotlight and showed me just what a covetous person I was. I thought I was blameless as regards to the law, Philippians 3, 7, at one time, but the law shined the searchlight of Christ's perfect standard on my life, and I was found to be a coveter. It exposed me. I heard a little jingle in a movie one time. I kind of debated whether to even bring this up, but it said, it said, don't covet what your neighbor's got. Don't whine like a big have-not. He says, or your life will turn to diddly squat. He says, and your everything will rot envy. That's what envy will do to a person. It will just rot their insides out. It's a horrible thing to Say, well, I wish I was this, I wish I was that, I wish I had their stuff, I wish I had their wife, I wish I had their house, I wish I had their dog, I wish I had their whatever. It's a horrible thing. It just rots people from the inside out. And uh, that was Paul at that time when he finally came to terms with the law and the reality of the law because he wanted the power and prestige and position and honor and possessions that others had he envied them and coveted their worldly success, and he coveted their worldly religious success also. He was exceeding beyond his contemporaries, it said. In other words, he was winning. He was better than they were. That's what coveting does to a person. They want everything, and they, they actually despise the fact that others have it, and they don't, or that they want to get it, and they do anything to climb the ladder and even step on people's heads in the process. That's coveting. That was Paul at the time. It's a hard issue. And when the spotlight of the law penetrated the darkness and pride of Paul's heart, it broke down his pride and arrogance and he, that he was better than other men. Paul could have been the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. Remember that guy? Jesus t tells a parable about this Pharisee, and the Pharisee goes into the temple and says he was praying thus to himself. 
prayer wasn't going to God. It was, he was praying to himself because he was the God of his own life. And he said, I thank thee, God, that I'm not like other men, a swindler and unjust, adulterers, and so on and so forth. He says, or even like this tax gatherer over here. Then he says, you know, I tithe of everything I get. I fast twice a week. And I'm the most wonderful thing you've ever seen. Aren't I wonderful? Not like this scum over here. And the scum over there, the tax gatherer, is beating on his breast. And he's saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The sinner. Price on himself is the worst. And Paul would eventually see himself as the what? Chief of sinners. If you read 1 Timothy. The least of the apostles. God broke him through the law. God broke him through his covetous nature. And when God opened up his heart, he brought in the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in his life as he repented of his sin and he was filled with the Holy Spirit, forgiven of his sin, and, and he lived a life that honored and glorified God. You see, the law, if rightly understood, beats us to a bloody pulp only to raise us up and transform and redeem and empower our lives. It serves to magnify our sin that we might repent of our sin and turn to the Savior that we might experience life and life eternal. John 10.10 says, I came that they might have life and have it, what? Abundantly or eternally. Theologian Charles Hodge once said this. He said, the law, although it cannot secure either the justification or sanctification of men, performs an essential part in the economy of salvation. It enlightens conscience and secures its verdict against a multitude of evils which we should not otherwise have recognized as sins. It arouses sin, increasing its power and making it both in itself and our conscience exceedingly sinful. It therefore produces that state of mind which is necessary preparation for the reception of the gospel or the good news. Conviction of sin, that is, an adequate knowledge of its nature and sense of its power over us is an indispensable part of evangelical religion before the gospel can be embraced as a means of deliverance from sin we must feel we are involved in corruption and misery that's the law it makes you feel the weight of your sin you know if we're sensitive when we're driving down to Fresno every time you go over 55 on 41, you should feel that weight, right? Then you get behind somebody and you really feel the weight when they're going that speed, right? I mean, just speaking from personal experience. But uh, if we're really, that's what Paul, coveting did to Paul. Every time he went over the 55 minute, you know, the 55 mile an hour coveting uh, experience, it began to break him began to break him down, and finally he was completely broken when he met Christ on the road to Damascus and prayed for three days, and I would imagine that three days was a time of unbelievable repentance, amazing repentance. Let me give you a little formula at this point, and it's this. Rules without relationship, and I 
heard this from Don Collins, equals rebellion. In other words, rules, just for the sake of rules, we break rules. In fact, they almost compel us to break them, but it says, don't walk on the grass, what do you do? Walk on the grass. It says, don't touch the wet paint, what do you do? Well, you got to see if it's wet, right? And you got to put your finger in it, but... Um, that's just the way we are, right? We're told not to do something, and that's the very thing we want to do because we don't have to be told to do it if we don't really want to do it. You know, if nobody wanted to walk on the grass, nobody had to say, don't walk on the grass. If nobody wanted to touch the paint, nobody had to put up a sign that says, don't touch the paint. It's the way the law is. If there's no relationship, now if you know the guy that did the painting and you love him, you know, rules plus relationship equals righteousness, you do what's right. You go, man, oh, man, Bob's going to have to repaint this thing if I get my grubby hands all over it, right? Or uh, Bob's going to have to reseed the lawn, and I love Bob, so I'm not going to walk on the lawn because he's going to have to clean up the mess. Rules plus relationship with God equals a righteous life. And that was the law's purpose, to expose man's hopeless hopelessly sinful condition to drive him to God for grace and forgiveness and heartfelt repentance. And to show him he had nowhere else to turn but to God. You know, I always think of Christ's confrontation with the Pharisees in Mark chapter 12. I love that passage. Pharisee came to Jesus and just said, what's the foremost commandment? And he said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might and all your... Mind, soul, what is it? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. I knew that. But uh, just seeing if you did. <laughs> but, uh, and he says to love your neighbor as yourself. And uh, the Pharisee goes, right you are. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love your neighbor as yourself is better than all, what? Sacrifice. And what was Jesus' response to that Pharisee? Rather than you woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, it was, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Because he understood that relationship was way more important than the rules. But he didn't badmouth the sacrifice or anything like that. You know, that, that's great. In that time, they were sacrificing. But it was a sacrifice to God. It wasn't a sacrifice just for yourself to make you look good. That's the difference. You see, the law has always been about relationship, but it shines the light of God's Word on what destroys that relationship, and what destroys that relationship is our sin, isn't it? You know, in James chapter 4, he talks about, you know, living adulterously in a spiritual sense where you're courting the world and, and you know, Christ is kind of a forgotten thought in your life. And he just says, draw near unto God and he'll draw near unto you. Weep and howl over your sin and, and get it right with God, and he'll bless your life. He'll bless your socks off. There's ten commands, I think, in verses 4 through 10 of that chapter. Amazing chapter, but if you want to get it right with God, read James chapter 4. So, the law shines the spotlight of God's word on what destroys our relationship with God. And secondly, the law stimulates sin. Look at verse 8. 
He says, but sin, not the law, but sin taking opportunity through the commandment. This is the commandment not to covet. He's, this is Paul's personal testimony. He says, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Now notice what Paul's saying here. He's saying that before he was convicted from the law about his covetous heart, it wasn't an issue. It wasn't a problem with him. It was just uh, who he was. He just wanted to excel. He wanted to be better than everybody, and he thought he was better than everybody at the same time. You know, when he had Stoven, Stoven, Stephen stoned, they laid their cloaks at the feet of the Apostle Paul, who was at that time was Saul. He thought he was better than Stephen, right? Because he was a follower of the Jehovah true God, and Stephen was a follower of this weird guy named Jesus, who supposedly rose from the dead and conquered sin and death and, and uh, wanted to save you by grace rather than by law, and Paul couldn't handle that. So he laid their feet at the feet of Paul. He's saying that before he was convicted from the law about his covetous heart, it just was who he was. He said he was excelling beyond all his contemporaries. He was winning. He was better than all of them. But when the law of God pointed out his pride and arrogance, and the evil covetousness of his heart, it was like an avalanche. Sin was unleashed. All of a sudden, he was convicted of something, and all of a sudden, he saw all the areas of conviction in his life. You know, sin's not limited to just one little area. You know, a guy that's a drunk isn't, doesn't have just have a sin in that one little area, right? I mean, it manifests itself in all kinds of areas. It spreads. The word for coveting in verse 8 is epithumia or lust, and, and the conviction of coveting in Paul's life unleashed a torrent of sinful lusts and passions and coveting in Paul's life that in essence killed him, as we're going to see. But you see, sin is never static. It's always progressive. It always grows. It multiplies. But the opposite is also true, isn't it? If we set our heart and minds to grow in love with God, to grow in righteousness, the progress becomes evident to all also. You know, I was, I was thinking of how to illustrate this. I've illustrated this in other ways before, but say a guy's got a problem with coveting like Paul did, okay? And he wakes up in the morning and he goes, oh, the law says I don't, I'm in trouble if I covet. So I'm not going to covet today. Oh, I'm not going to covet. I'm not going to covet. So he goes to work, drives the hour to work, and he's telling himself, I'm not going to covet. Uh, when I get to work, I'm, I'm just not going to covet. So as soon as he gets in the door, he covets after the secretary. Then he covets after his boss, who he wants his position. And then he covets the guy who's making more money than him and got the promotion ahead of him, and, and he's angry about that, and he's coveting his, his position. Then he's coveting the fact that he had this other guy only had to drive 15 minutes to work, and he had to drive an hour. And he's coveting this. And, you know, it just, when you become convicted of sin, it just mushrooms like an evil little cloud hanging over your head. But what if that guy... Woke up in the morning and said, you know, I'm going to love God today. 
I love Christ, and I'm going to learn about Christ. So he gets in the Word, gets up a little early, gets in the Word, reads the Word to search out the knowledge of God and the person of Christ. And, and uh, he prays, and then he eats breakfast, or does that while he's eating breakfast. And then he goes to work, and he listens to a good preacher, uh, like you got at this church, and uh, preachers. And uh, he prays on his way to work, and he prays on his way into the office. That guy's going to have a bigger chance of not coveting than the other way, right? The law kills, as we're going to see. Pursuing a relationship with God brings you to life through Christ, as we're going to see in a moment. It's just kind of a way of illustrating. You know, Paul nailed this principle when he said in Galatians chapter 5, in verses 7 through 10, he said, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. The word means to thumb your nose at God. It says, uh, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, thus shall he reap. If he sows to the flesh, from the flesh he reaps corruption. Okay, he gets the fruit of corruption going in his life, right? If he's sowing to the flesh. If he sows to the Spirit, he says he reaps eternal life. Now, if you know anything about gardening, this is why Paul says the next verse, he says, so then don't grow weary in well-doing, because if you don't grow weary, you'll reap in due time. So here's this guy, comes to Christ, he's got all these problems, and he starts growing a little garden of grace out in the backyard. In the meantime, the big dump truck's coming with the... the uh, load of the flesh, the fruit of the flesh, and dumping in the front yard. And he's wanting this garden to get going, right? That's why it talks a lot about perseverance and, and faithfulness and sticking to it, because eventually the dump truck stops coming and the garden in the rear of the house grows. The garden of grace grows and it starts bringing forth fruit. The other stuff starts becoming very minimal. Every once in a while a you know, a rotten papaya will come in your front yard. But think of the process. Don't grow weary in well-doing, for in due time you will reap if you don't grow weary. Because it's a process. Because we've sown a lot to the flesh, and there's a lot of junk coming in that we have to process even while we're growing in grace, Right? So the question is, what are we letting multiply in our lives? Are we simply being buried in our sin, and, uh, which produces more sin? Or are we turning to Christ for grace and forgiveness and growing in righteousness and right living? You know, I love 1 Corinthians 10.31 and its simplicity. It says, so then whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God? And that, that is a great question. You know, it's not what would Jesus do, it's what would glorify God in this situation? That's all I've got to ask myself. Is this what I'm doing right now or thinking to be doing, is it glorifying God? You know, I love uh, Matthew 5, 16. He says, let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. The good works aren't to glorify me. The good works aren't to, to go, oh, isn't Bob a wonderful guy? Isn't Craig a wonderful guy? Isn't uh, 
you know, Dave, a wonderful guy, or uh, Sandy, a wonderful guy, or Nancy, or a girl. And uh, it's, is God being glorified through the way you live your life? Simple question. For the law arouses sin, but Christ transforms the sinner. So focus on your relationship with God, not on the requirements. Get that down. Focus on the relationship with God, not the requirements that God has placed on your life. Because love will cover a multitude of sins, and as you realize the great love God has for you, you will want to live a life that demonstrates that love for Him. Then thirdly, the law slays the sinner. And I'm not just making this up. Verses 9 through 11, he says, I was once alive apart from the law. And he just kept it externally. He says, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. All of a sudden, I realized that it was a coveter, and all of a sudden, my whole life is in shambles. It's in rot. He says, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Sin killed Paul, all, or Saul, all his aspirations of glory and Judaism. Now follow the reasoning here. When Paul externalized the law and merely followed uh, in the oldness of the letter, as he says in Philippians 3, 7, as to the law found blameless. But then he says in verse 9, it tells us, he was alive apart from the reality of the law. He was that Pharisee in Luke 18 who thought he was doing really well, found blameless. You know, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth. I even tithe my mint, dill, and cumin. That's what they used to do. You know, Jesus, as he's talking in Matthew 23, as he's scathingly denouncing the Pharisees, says, you, die, you, you know, you, you tithe your mint, dill, and cumin, and you know, ignore the weightier things of the law, like grace and mercy and love and forgiveness and, you know, the things you should have done. But he was that Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. But when he understood the reality of the law that no man can keep it, that it's God's perfect word and standard, and the law came alive, and Paul died. The law, verse 11, deceived him. It didn't give him life or eternal life, but it gave him spiritual death instead. In his own words, he says, it killed me. And that's even what the Greek says. It killed me. Brought about my death. This is what you might call the ultimate deception. The religion of human achievement and self-righteousness, which is a terrible contradiction in terms, and the religion of self-effort is so compelling for people. It, it seems so right, but the problem is it ends in physical and spiritual death. It kills the sinner. It offers life and delivers death. That's the great deception. You think you're getting life, and you're really in the process of dying as you Try to establish your own righteousness. But there is a silver lining. Once the law kills our hopes of salvation through human self-effort and achievement, and we realize the deception of earning our way to heaven 
that it can't be done, and we turn to the Savior for mercy and grace and forgiveness, this dead sinner can be raised to newness of life. Turn back to Romans chapter 6 and read that again in verses 4 through 7. He says, therefore, because we've been baptized into Christ's death, he says, we've been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, you died with Christ and then you were raised to newness of life. The old man died the new man kicked in as Christ gave you life. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ. Then he says, for if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves of sin. Why? Well, he who has died is freed from sin. I've never seen a dead slave sin. It's impossible, as Pastor Craig said when he's preaching on that passage. It's impossible for dead people to sin. And that's what has to happen to us first before we can receive the grace of God. We have to die to self. We have to repent of our sin and turn to Christ for salvation. That's the beauty of it. That's the silver lining in the law. So we see the law accomplishes that purpose. It slays the sinner. It takes away his hope and hypocrisy of self-engineered reformation and throws the repentant sinner at the foot and the mercy of the grace of God in Christ. Beautiful picture when you think about it. Beautiful metaphor. So we see the law is spotlight sin. It stimulates sin. It, once we understand how sinful we are, we start seeing sin on a broad level in our lives. It slays the sinner. Then lastly, it shines forth the sinfulness of sin by comparison. Look at verse 12. He says, so then, the law is holy. He's talking about the whole law and prophets. It's all holy because it comes from a holy God, right? And he says, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. He's talking about coveting, the, one, the commandment that actually killed him. It's good. It's righteous. It's holy. Now, what was Paul's original question that we started out with? Is the law sin? Far from it, folks. It accomplishes wonders, miracles, salvation in a person's life. He tells us, first of all, the entire law is holy. It is given by a perfect and holy God, and every Jew and God-fearing Gentile knew this. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that he didn't come to abolish the law of the prophets, but he came to fulfill. And he said, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. That's a pretty fair endorsement for the law, right? It's around forever. Why? Because it's God's perfect law. So is the law sin? Not on your life. Even the commandment that brought about his own death, the commandment not to covet, Paul says is holy. It was given by a sovereign holy God for men to follow. It is righteous. It communicated to us 
God's just and perfect righteousness and standard for living. And it is good because there's none good but God. And all that he does is good. God is good what? All the time, and especially when he gave the law, because it is perfect. David tells us the law of the Lord is what? Perfect, restoring the soul. He doesn't say condemning the soul. It does condemn, because it searchlights out our sin, but it restores if we take it in the right way. If we see it as pointing out our sinfulness and our need for the Savior. That's why Galatians talks about the law being a tutor to lead us to Christ. It's a teacher to bring us to Christ, to show us how in need we are of a Savior who is gracious and loving and redemptive. I, lo I, lo I keep repeating Colossians 1, 13 and 14, which says, uh, God transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, what? The forgiveness of sins. And how awesome is it that our sins should be forgiven? So there you have it. Is the law sin? No way. Although it spotlights sin, it stimulates sin, it slays the sinner, and it utterly shines forth the wickedness of the evil of sin by way of contrast. It's perfect, the total opposite of sin. Therefore, the law is holy, righteous, and good. And the bad news is try as you may, you will never be able to keep it. You'll never be able to fulfill it ever in your own strength. But the good news is that Christ accomplished that on our behalf and given us his Holy Spirit that we might live lives that honor and glorify God. That's the good news. And even though you were dead in your trespasses and sins, Ephesians chapter 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience, the devil, says, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desire of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, even though that's true. But then he says, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. We were raised from the spiritually dead just as Christ was raised from the physically dead. By grace you have been saved. That's in parentheses, by the way, but I'll just repeat that in a moment. And he says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Doesn't that just blow your mind? God will display us for eternity as trophies of his grace and mercy that'll be evident in the intermediate heaven when we go in spirit if we died to go be with christ or in the new heavens and new earth when we're in glorified bodies we will be trophies of his grace what could be greater than that and he will continue to display his kindness and his mercy and the riches of his grace in our life and then it says for by grace you've been saved through faith 
not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. It's all of grace. And the proof positive of that is God's law. Isn't that a scary thought? <laughs> God's law proves that you cannot earn God's favor. That's what Paul says. That you have to be saved by grace coming from the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross and his resurrection. The law kills, God's grace gives life. That's the point of what we just talked about. So quit trying, to, if you're trying to earn God's favor by keeping the law, start keeping the law because you already have God's favor if you've come to Christ. You're not earning anything. You've already, it's already been given to you as a free gift. So serve him out of relationships. Serve him out of love. Live your life in a, a way that honors and glorifies God because you're in love with God, because you love Christ. And that's why we should be characterized by love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the, the power of it. Thank you that it does shine the spotlight of, of your holiness on our sin. And it, it shows us sin in such a broad sense, how big a sinners we really are and how hopelessly lost we are. And it, it literally kills us to the point where we can leave our old life and embrace the new life that we can have in Christ if we would but believe. So God, I pray if there's someone here in the congregation this morning that they would let their sinfulness just kill them. And Lord, that they would let your grace and the power of your death and resurrection bring them to life. And so we leave that in your hands. We thank you that you are the one who works on the human heart, only you can give life. And thank you for demonstrating that through what, what appears to be life, but is really death, but really brings about life, the law. So God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for what you've taught us. We pray that we would think about it long and hard and understand the truths that were expressed today. And, and Lord, that it would transform our lives and the lives of those around us. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.